Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. It is, it is staggering. Yeah, um, absolutely staggering. And you know, when we're you, in the bottom category. Yeah, but not just at the bottom, in a yeah. category on our own. <laughs> so yeah. we are the only member of this bottom category for a developed market. We're the twelfth biggest economy in the world. Yep. We're the second biggest funds management industry in the world. Mm-hmm. And we're forcing people to put ten percent of their income, ten and a half percent of their income into super. And, and we're the worst at disclosure. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Superannuation represents about a fifth of the net worth of Australian households. There's over $2.2 trillion invest in super, and that's growing at $100 billion every quarter. Choosing the right super fund is one of the most significant financial decisions you'll ever have to make. The choices are mind-boggling. So, joining me to shine the spotlight on the super industry is Vince Scully from Life Sherpa. Hi, Vince. G'day, Phil. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming back. It's been a couple of years, I think, since you've been here. You were in the garden studio. Really? First, yeah, yeah. I can't believe it's that long ago. Maybe even three years. Anyway, Vince Scully. It was is... a hot day, I can remember that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Vince Scully is a qualified accountant, financial planner, and mortgage broker with more than 35 years of experience in banking, finance, and financial planning. So, Vince, how difficult is it to choose a super fund? Very, in a word, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because, you know, the government's effectively outsourced retirement planning to the population as a whole and sort of to, and by inference mm-hmm. to the industry, but it hasn't given the consumer the tools to actually choose. Yeah. So, you know, go back pre-1993, 92, when Compulsory Super started, many of us, you know, made up our own mind. We decided how much of our money to save for retirement. Some of us had employers that had lifetime pension plans. And like the uh, public service. Like the public service, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And then in 1993, we made the whole public their own little fund manager mm-hmm. and forced them to save some of their income into this system and yet we didn't as a society or as a country give them the tools to choose it which is sort of the worst form of deregulation really but here we are you know 30 years later and as you said there's 2.2 trillion dollars we're now putting 10 and a half percent of our gross income into it and for many people um, certainly those who started in the workforce in the last 20 years their super will, husbanded properly, um, mm-hmm. provide a very good basis for a comfortable retirement. So that's a good thing. Mm. Um, I doubt you would find too many people could argue that that's a bad thing. But there are some serious problems with the system. And giving people a choice without giving them the tools to make the choice strikes me as a dumb idea. And it's interesting because we're always told that we're kind of the envy of the world in this space, that it's such a unique system that we have here. Well, it is. And we are either number two or number three 
in the size of our funds management mm. industry. Um, certainly per head, it's a huge number, and the vast bulk of that money is in super. And it at least is providing a bit of a balance to the 90% of household assets that are in real estate. <laughs> um so, yeah, not only do we have the biggest funds management industry, or one of the biggest, we also have the second most wealthy households in the world, mm. almost all of which is dependent on the value of real estate, yep. which is the most expensive in the world, or among the most expensive in the world. So we're basing this interview on your article on the Life Sherpa website, How to Choose the Right Super Fund. And um, I just want to get back to the basics yep. here. What's the difference between an industry fund and a retail fund? Because they're, they're the main two types of funds. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a very unfortunate historical divide. Mm. APRA uses categories when it's analysing and reporting funds. And that's the that's the pretend, APRA, prudential yeah, the, the Australian regulator. prudential regulator. Yeah, that the, regulates it. Well, what's the second A? One of them's Australian. Australian prudential Regul- regulatory authority. authority. Yep. Um, yep. They are the people responsible for regulating public offer super funds. Self-made super funds are regulated by the tax office, interestingly enough, and they collect a whole bunch of statistics and they categorise funds as either industry, retail, or corporate. But it's largely meaningless from a consumer perspective. And there's also a distinction between the adverts that you see for industry super funds, which are put out by a a group called Industry Fund Services, I think it's called, which represents about 23 of the dozens of industry funds. So the ones that have the industry fund label is a small subset of those that are categorised by APRA as industry funds. But it's not a particularly reliable indicator of performance. And we, we can talk about the impact of member ownership later on, but... Yeah, yeah because um, that's part of it. Which it? is yeah. part of it, but yeah. it's not a reliable indicator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would suggest to most people they should just ignore it and look at the fund itself. Mm. That the label is largely academic... And in some cases, it might actually be bad for you to be in a fund that's particularly concentrated in your industry. So if you're a construction worker, being in a fund with thousands of other construction workers who are likely to get laid off at the same time as you are and invest in the industry you're working in strikes me as a lack of diversification and something that might be better avoided. Um, on the other hand, some of these industry-specific funds have insurance offerings that are particularly suited to those industries. So if you work at heights, you work underground, you're a commercial airline pilot, yeah. um, your industry funds, as in the fund that is aimed at your industry, mm. as opposed to which one of the 23 funds, could very well have an insurance offering that is tailored to your needs. But letting the insurance tail wag the investment dog is often a mistake. Sometimes it's a necessary evil, but yeah. mm-hmm. for the general public, it's probably a bad approach to take. Similarly, why you should never let tax the tax tail wag the investment dog. We shouldn't let the insurance tail wag the investment dog either. So to answer your initial question, just ignore these labels. Mm. Look at the individual product, because there's so much variation on all sides of that equation and 
from an investment decision perspective, mm. you can't lump all retail funds together or all corporate funds together or all industry funds together. Because that's a problem really though, is it becomes so confusing for regular investors that they just default to whatever their employer gives them as hmm. the, the standard one. What are the, what are these default kind of Yeah, now that that's an interesting one. Like. That's an interesting one. And a recent change has complicated that. So let's let's unpick that for a moment. So when compulsory super started out, your employer had to choose a default fund. Hmm. And in many cases, that default fund was dictated by your industrial award or your enterprise bargaining agreement. So many people in larger companies were directed by their industrial instrument towards a specific fund. So if you worked in retail, you were often directed towards REST, the Retail Employees Superannuation Trust. You were in healthcare, you were often directed towards HESTA, the Health Employees Superannuation Trust of Australia. And that's sort of where the industry description sort of comes from. Mm -hmm. Over time, people got more and more choice, but the employer still had to choose a fund. So if you didn't make a choice, you went into your default fund. More recently, the dynamics around default funds have been changed. So an employer now must put the fund, the contributions into the fund to which you're stapled, mm-hmm. which means that if you don't make a choice, you won't get end up with another fund. Yeah, which is great if you're running one of the big funds because most people start their working life in hospitality or retail or doing mm-hmm. unskilled industrial work. So if you're in retail, you'll end up in rest. If you're in hospitality, you'll end up in house plus. If you're in industry, you'll often end up in Australian super, and so that's where your money will go. And Australians are notoriously disengaged or lazy or confused, and only 3% of us change funds every year. Disengaged or lazy or confused yes. in terms of super, not in general. Yes. Well, <laughs> Let's I mean, just clarify yes, sorry, for listeners yes. there. Um, <laughs> and you know, this is sort of the curse of too much choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like logging into Netflix. It takes you longer to choose which movie to watch than actually watching it. And that's sort of where default and stapling came in. It's the play something for me, Netflix. Mm-hmm. Don't make me make a choice. Mm-hmm. But there are so many pluses to actually making a choice. But how do you make a choice if you don't have the knowledge? So it seems that um, a lot of people consider fees as one of the main things to look out for. You're looking for a low fee yeah. investment choice. But um, this is, according to you, not the most important. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Mm. Fees matter and mm. they matter a lot. Mm. But as a filter, they're not particularly useful. So one of the biggest innovations in disclosure was APRA launching their heat map. Mm -hmm. So every six months, APRA publish a a summary of all of the public offer funds and look at fees and returns Mm. and a whole bunch of other metrics. And when you look at the, in fact, all of those, once we analyze it every time it comes out, there is close to zero correlation between fees and net performance. Mm. Mm. In fact, when you look at the numbers, there is a very slight correlation between higher fees and higher performance, but it's statistically insignificant, so you can ignore it. 
And when you look at the top performing funds, so if you look at the top three funds for, or the top five funds for the three year periods, either just finished or the one before that, the number one performing fund was in the top quartile for fees. That is the highest quarter Mm. of all funds for fees. So on its own, it's not a meaningful measure. When you're comparing apples with apples, then clearly lower fees wins. But choosing a fund based on fees is little better than throwing a dart at the so we can actually discount that. Out um, of the well, occasion, I, I, would, I wouldn't discount it entirely, but it's not yeah. the first thing you should look at. They're number seven in my list of eight yeah. things you yeah. should consider. Um, clearly, don't ignore them. Mm-hmm. And all other things being equal, lower fees are better. Yeah. But getting to the all other things are equal bit is actually the hardest part of this. Mm. Um, because lower fees could simply indicate they're invested in lower cost types of assets yep so cash is cheaper to manage than emerging market equities mm. but it's not going to perform as well mm. equities are probably cheaper to manage than bonds are they the right thing for you well actually who knows and property is more expensive to manage than equities mm. so what's the fee actually telling you is it that the fund manager's fee gauging or is it that they're invested in more expensive things that might better suit your needs so getting to a fund that meets your requirements is the first step and then you can look at fees and so when you look in the media to ask the very question you just posed how should i choose a super fund Mm. almost everything you read including asics money smart says you should look at past performance and fees yep and on the other hand if you look at any uh, pds or you read anything else on the asic website it warns you that past performance is no indicator of future performance. Yep. And that's clearly true when you look at the APRA report. So if you look at the top five funds for the most recent three years and the top five funds for the three years before that, there's only one fund that's in both lists. So it's sort of the easy answer and feels feels sort of right if you don't look any deeper because you would say, well... Yeah, if I'm looking at school exam results, the guy who got an A last year, you know, the guy who's got an A every year, he's mm. more likely to get an A this year than the guy who's got a D every year. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't quite work that way when it comes mm. to funds management. Yeah. And outperforming, whatever that means, um, is A, very difficult to, to do consistently and sustainably, and it's even more difficult to identify in advance. The biggest driver of returns is a thing that we in industry call asset allocation. Oh, I was going to ask yeah. about that because, no, I was just going to say, I I know listeners get bored because I do go on about, about asset yeah. allocation quite a bit and how important it is and um, what the mix is and different ages and so forth. So, yes, Please. Yeah. So, asset allocation. Um, so what asset is it? allocation. What yeah. is it? Um, that's a really good question. And it's used to mean lots of different things. And this this you can actually see when you log into your super account and you look at your balance. Yes. It's going to be sort divided. Of, sort kind of. of. Sort of yeah. divided into yeah. so, the asset classes. Yeah. So asset allocation is a word that describes what you're invested in. Mm. So not which individual bond or individual share you're invested in but the groups of things you're invested in. Mm. And 
at the highest level, we generally divide the stuff that you can invest in into so-called growth assets Mm. and so-called defensive assets. And that's a broad distinction between the types of things that can grow faster than inflation. And inflation is among your biggest enemies looking at retirement because it's Mm. so far Mm. away. And they're things like, um, I loosely call them bricks and businesses. So shares, which are businesses, Mm-hmm. and bricks, which is infrastructure and real estate. Mm-hmm. And those three categories of things can be loosely grouped as growth assets, things that are capable of returning mm-hmm. greater than inflation over time. And that's the engine that drives your ultimate retirement income. Yep. The counter to that is so-called defensive assets, which are called defensive because they're designed to even out the lumps and bumps in your growth investment and that's generally cash and bonds. Mm. And they are there to provide ballast. They're the things that stop the ship bobbing around in the water too wild, wildly. Although it hasn't worked that well over the last year. Well, that's certainly the, an, last, that's the last year, <laughs> that's it not certainly has But anyway, um, that's another story. But within each of those categories, how you divide them up is almost as important Mm. and i'll just um interrupt you for a moment because i had a guest who said you can either own it or loan it yeah which i think is a great way of describing the differences between those two yeah it's a good summary Mm. um i use the bricks and businesses or bonds and cash yeah um but yeah it's you can own the asset or the Mm -hmm. company yep or the great companies of the world as um jl collins calls them or you can lend the money Mm. Um, to the two governments or two to governments corporations or, or corporations yeah. mm. um and but with even within the growth not all growth assets are created equal so yeah. if i look at shares mm-hmm. um you know i can look at big companies or small companies or medium companies uh, small companies should in theory deliver higher returns than big companies mm. i can look at companies that are in australia so domestic equities Mm. Or I can look at ones that are listed offshore, so global equities. And I can look at ones that are invested in less developed markets, so-called emerging or frontier markets. Mm. And again, they should perform better, although they're riskier. They're riskier because you know, there's less regulation, they're smaller markets, you can't necessarily rely on the same level of disclosure. But they're all factors that go into your asset allocation. And similarly, when it comes to bonds, you know, I can have high investment grade or low investment mm. grades. Mm. I can have short-term bonds or long-term bonds. They will all behave differently. And working out those allocations determines your expected return. And it determines the variability in that returns. That you can't have higher returns without accepting lower certainty of outcome. So for long-term investments, so if you're a 20-something, you Mm. would want to have, all other things being equal, more stuff invested in growth assets. Mm -hmm. That comes with it greater variability in the outcome. So when I look at so-called risk, and when you look at a PDS, risk is generally code for volatility. That's something that will impact your way to actually generating the returns. So the underlying assets would be expected to generate a higher return on average. Um, Sometimes they won't. 
um, but on balance they will and the longer you have them the less variability you get but for most people risk isn't actually volatility it's what's the risk of me achieving my goal will i or won't i have a retirement income that will last as long as i do yep and give me the standard of living i expect and there are three levers you can pull to get there which is really time so the later you retire the more certain you're going to be of getting it the amount of money you invest and obviously there's a trade-off between spending now and putting more away and the risk you're prepared to take and to live through a global financial and to live through a global financial crisis and a covid and a sars yeah Mm. yeah if if i go back in in my investing Mm. history The Wall Street crash no, doesn't, not the Wall, doesn't count. No, not the Wall Street crash. Um, the oil crisis is my first yeah. first memory. They come and go, as, as, as my, my good friend Nick Murray says. The declines are temporary. The advance is, is inevitable. When you summarise all of that, you say the two biggest drivers of your returns is your asset allocation and your behaviour. Because choosing a higher asset allocation than you're prepared to tolerate where you react Mm, adversely so the number of people who in the gfc went to cash Mm -hmm. or in the covid march decline moved their super from high growth to trying to time the market trying to time the match and what they've done is lock in downs Mm -hmm. so you need to have the right asset allocation to give you the outcome you need based on the amount of money you're prepared to put aside and how late you're prepared to retire Mm -hmm. and is consistent with the behaviour that you will exhibit when things go down. And things will go down. Uh, Most years you can expect to see a 10% decline. Mm. In many years you're going to see a 20% decline. Mm. In some years you'll see a 50% decline. Mm. So knowing your behaviour when these inevitably happen happen is key to it so whilst a hundred percent growth allocation would be expected to outperform Mm. most people who choose it don't actually realize the excess return because their behavior gets in their way hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> Super is one of the most important investments you'll ever make. But how do you know if you're in the best fund for your situation? Head to lifesherpa.com.au to find out more. Life Sherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. So in Superspeak, in Superworld, when you go in and sign up and you work out what your asset allocation is, the terminology they use is things like balanced or conservative balanced. Yes. And this is really a reflection 
of asset allocation, it, isn't it? It is. And aggressive, is that aggressive the yep. other term? Um, I must use? admit, that's a term I really hate, and very few investors will actually describe themselves as aggressive. Yes, so, I know, but this is this is the key to asset allocation, isn't it, it really? It, it is. When you're ticking that box, and even a young person who's in their 20s might go, I'm a conservative person, I don't want to lose money, I'll be in the conservative That's right, and our funds. natural behaviour as humans... Yeah. Actually, this is my retirement savings. I have to be really careful with them. Mm, mm. Therefore, I should invest conservatively. Yeah. That's, but it means something that's completely different. That's the absolute different. worst thing that you could do. Mm. Um, so by taking no risk, investing in no investment risk, and investing in cash, like putting the money in the bank, yeah. what you're actually doing is you're guaranteeing that you're going to fail to provide enough for your retirement. Mm. <laughs> um, so in some ways, that's the riskiest option. Yeah. The outcome is certain but it's a certain that you're going to fail to achieve your goal. Yeah. So back to your point about choosing a fund, those labels have sort of become meaningless. Um, when I started in this game, balanced meant 60-40 yeah. or 50-50. Today, Between ba- owning it and then loaning yeah, it. Yeah, so a traditional balance fund meant something that was roughly balanced between owning it and loaning it or growth mm-hmm. and, and, and defensive. That may or may may not make sense today, but balance has become to mean generally somewhere in the 70 growth, 30 defensive to Mm -hmm. 80 growth. So don't look at the label, look at the asset allocation. The labels are so confusing. I could give you a a range of balanced funds that could be anywhere from 60, 40 to 90, 10. Hugely different beasts, all with the same balanced label. So you need to look below that into the actual asset allocation. Which brings us on to the next problem Mm -hmm. um, is... Transparency? Is is transparency. So when someone tells you that this is a 90-10 fund, Mm. it might or might not be Mm. um, for two reasons. One, usually these are targets. So... When you look at a fund, and I might just pull up some notes here, if that's okay. Okay. Um, just while you're pulling up the notes, I just wanted to say that, um, and this this is a quote from the article, Morningstar reports that Australia ranks at the bottom of 26 global markets for investment portfolio disclosure, which I think is just astoni- it astonishing. Is, it is staggering. Yeah, um, absolutely staggering. And, you know, when we're you th- in the bottom category. Yeah, <laughs> but this. not just at the bottom, in a yeah. category on our own. <laughs> so yeah. we are the only member of this bottom category for a developed market. We're the 12th mm-hmm. biggest economy in the world. Yeah. We're the second biggest funds management industry in the world. Mm-hmm. And we're forcing people to put 10% of their income, 10.5% of their income into super and, and we're the worst it. at disclosure. Yeah. Um, but now, thank you for that. I've now pulled it up. So, for example, Australian Super Balanced, which is the default option. So if your employer has chosen Australian Super as your default fund, this is the one yeah. you'll be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not picking on Australian Super. It's just an example. Um, their target asset allocation is 78 growth, 22 defensive. That's a balanced option. That's isn't? a balanced option. The actual result at the 30th of June 2022 was 7327, mm-hmm. but they have significantly wide discretion in what they can actually do with against that target. And if they were at the lowest or the lower end of the available range they have, 
that could be 30 growth, 70 defensive, wow. i.e. Mm-hmm. a hyper-conservative portfolio, yeah. or at the highest growth, it could be 100% zero. Now, they are the ranges, and as you can see, the actual's not that far from the target, yeah. but it's clearly a more defensive spread, which might indicate that they took a you know, decided to take some risk off the table during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could end up with a highly conservative portfolio. I think it's really good for listeners to understand these percentages, though. Yeah. I, I think do. this is a great takeaway to know what, you know, 80%, 20% and so forth means in terms of just breaking down these into individual areas of investment and what yeah. they actually mean. Yeah. Sam Cecilia, the CIO of House Plus, mm. was in the press during the year saying, we have 0% in bonds. And he's running a fund that is got a target allocation of 76 growth, 24% mm. defensive. Mm. You're not necessarily guaranteed to get what you think you're buying, and they don't disclose how they're going to decide where in that range they're going to go. There is a place for what's called dynamic asset allocation. I'm not a fan because it smacks of market timing, but yeah. there is a place for it. Presumably, there's going to be funds within that who will be doing the market timing on your behalf anyway. Sure. Yeah. But what I want to know is, what am I actually buying? And the short answer is, I don't know. Mm. (laughs) So if a member of LifeShopper comes to me and says, I'm invested in the Australian Super Balance Fund, actually working out what they're really invested in is a really hard job. And it's partly why advice costs so much. If you've worked out that I want to be in a 78-22, which rounding, call it Mm 80-20, If you buy Australian Super because their target's close to that, you've actually ended up with something that's closer to 70-30, and you could have ended up with something that was 100-0. So, and you won't know till the end of the year. So that's a disclosure problem. So not only do you not know that what you're actually going to get in most cases, but the way people assign assets or investment things they're invested in between growth and defensive Mm -hmm. does vary a little bit. The rules around this are a bit woolly. So some people would treat infrastructure, for example, which is more stable than investing in banks or Mm. industrial companies because their revenues are a bit more stable. Roads, airports. So roads, airports, power stations, pipelines, they tend to exhibit lower volatility or a lower beta, as the mathematicians mm. call it. They move around less than the market does. Yeah. And so they have some defensive characteristics. We would classify them still as growth assets because mm. they are in the BRICS category. Well, yeah. they're sort of on the border between BRICS mm. and businesses. They, yeah. they have some characteristics that real estate exhibits because yeah. they have generally CPI-related income mm-hmm. or GDP-related income but they have growth potential. So some of that, depending on which fund you look at, some of that would be allocated to the defensive category and some might be in the growth category. Mm -hmm. And APRA, the regulator, sets the rules and says, well, if it's listed, you must count it as 100% growth. Whereas if it's unlisted, you can allocate half of it to defensive. So So that's interesting, you know. So like if it's, you know, a toll road, that's a listed toll road company, for example, or... Correct. So, or, or even as an example, Sydney Airports, which was listed and exa- then is now unlisted. exactly. So yeah. Sydney Airports a really good yeah. case in point because mm-hmm. 
pre the takeover, which I'll talk about in a moment. Before that, Unisuper owned, I think, 19% of Sydney Airport. And when it was listed, that would have been in the growth category. Yep. Mm-hmm. Host Plus owned Brisbane Airport through its investment in the IFM Infrastructure Fund. That was unlisted. So half of that would have been allocated to defensive. <laughs> so when I look at the two investments, I go, mm. I can have a listed liquid investment in the country's biggest airport with low capex requirements and relatively low growth built in. Mm. Or I can have a higher risk investment in a secondary airport with massive capex and high growth built into the price. Gee, no wonder which, no which, wonder people's eyes yeah, glaze exactly. over when they look at their super um, and go, it's too hard. It is. <laughs> and um, that's why you, sh- you need advice. So the day that this group of super funds bought all of the shares in Sydney Airport and delisted it. Mm. So on that day, Unisuper's investment in Sydney Airport, in the signature of a pen, became... No, with fif- no difference no in operational capabilities. That's right. And, yeah. and in the middle of COVID, suddenly became half a defensive asset. Now, there are academic reasons why to justify why that's the case. They're the rules. People are, I'm not suggesting anyone's doing anything nefarious or illegal. They're just mm. following the rules. Yep. But the rules, whilst they have some academic basis, don't really help the consumer. Mm. And part of the argument as to why you might treat as defensive is because it's unlisted, it's less volatile. That is, Sydney Airport, the price changed every day as millions of shares changed hands and it reflected all the information. The value on Brisbane Airport was determined by a group of analysts in a back room with a spreadsheet and was only corrected to market when an actual trade happened. And that's a big difference with unlisted, isn't it? It is. And it's a real problem with unlisted because you really don't know what you're getting. And That's right. There's a lack of liquidity yeah. because you don't know what it's going to be worth until it's actually... That's right. ...someone and, is paying for it. And the upside, though, so I don't want to be negative on unlisted assets, yeah. because an unli- all other things being equal, an unlisted asset should give you a higher return than the same asset listed. Mm. as long as you buy at the right price. And that's because investors are prepared to accept a lower return on a list as in return for liquidity and transparency. Mm. So they're saying, I'm prepared to accept a lower return on this asset because I can see the price every day and I can get in and out whenever I want. But they want a, a risk premium for buying unlisted assets. They should give you a higher return in return for accepting lower volatility. But the problem here is not the transaction itself, it's the instant reclassification of it and the fact that we have no information to ascertain whether the price we're buying at it at, or indeed selling it at, if you are starting to retire or moving funds, is what it's actually going to be worth. And we've sort of seen the impact of this in the real estate market. So if you look at the movements in real estate listed real estate funds or REITs. Which is mainly industrial and commercial. Yeah, or Westfield. Westfield. Yeah, um, yeah, rather than residential. Yeah. It's not Um, residential. No, generally not. Mm. Um, That's moved down much further, reflecting the fact that half the offices are empty Mm. and no one's going to retail anymore because Mm. they're all shopping online. But the unlisted asset prices haven't moved down anywhere near as much. Mm. And so that would beg the question is if I'm investing in funds with lots of unlisted assets, am I paying too much for this? 
and investing often comes down to the price you pay initially. I mean, what's, what does Warren Buffett say about margin of error and buying it yeah, at yeah. the right price? So yeah, that's, buying at the right price gives you the margin of error. Yeah, yeah, something, so, something to that effect. Yeah, that's why I'm not as not as good an investor as Warren. Um, <laughs> but that's the challenge for a consumer saying getting the higher returns that are available from unlisted assets could be a good thing but how do i know i'm buying them at the right price and how do i know that these analysts in the back room are doing the right thing i've supervised this task in Mm. in over 20 years ago i know where the skeletons are buried (laughs) and we used to have a with, I'm not going to name my former employer, but um, we used to have a saying that if you torture the numbers for long enough, they will eventually confess. Mm. So now we've confused everyone. We have completely confused everyone. Where can people get advice from? Yeah, I'm not saying. I mean, obviously, you might say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Because he runs an advice business. Yeah. But you know, given enough time, commitment, and engagement, a consumer could do enough work to review the hundred and odd options Mm. and reflect on their own needs and come to a conclusion people could do that and that's why i set out the eight step methodology Mm. in Mm. that article that you referred to so if you which we'll we'll link to yeah so if you spend enough time read Mm -hmm. enough pds's and educate yourself enough you could do that um because life gets in the way you know we're busy people. We mm. have kids. We take them to school. We, you know, we want to enjoy ourselves. We want to. Life's too short for yeah, PDSs. Life's very short, mm. and PDSs are—they've um, oh. all become very similar. Like mm-hmm. the fee section is always section six. Mm-hmm. Um, the investment section is usually section five. So they have a structure to them that makes yeah. them relatively easy to follow. But the sameness obscures the differences, mm. and so you need to look for what's not said and what are the subtle differences between them because it's those subtleties that give you the insight Mm. and um, are you prepared to keep doing that and the fact that only three percent of people change super funds every year mostly because they move jobs Mm. um, is a sign that it's actually a very hard job and that's why i created life shipper to be able to deliver advice at a price that is affordable for the average australian so for 499 dollars, we will review your existing super fund and make a recommendation and for many of our members they will have their annual fees and get improved transparency and an asset allocation that matches their risk profile and you know 499 dollars in the scheme of what will provide for potentially 40 years of your life Mm. strikes me as being a very modest sum even if you only have 20 30 40 50 a hundred thousand dollars in your fund because if you're a 30 year old this is probably your biggest asset if you haven't bought a home but and remember the the one thing that i keep coming back to is that two-thirds of the money you spend in retirement will come from the return on your money so This is one of those decisions that you can make relatively quickly, has a very minor impact on your day-to-day budget, Mm. but will have a massive impact on future fill. Fantastic. So we're going to put a a link in the show notes and the blog post 
to the article about Super if you want people want to go through and find out exactly what's going on. But uh, Life Sherpa, how can people find out more? Uh, we're at lifesherpa.com.au on on the web. Um, Facebook as well, I think. Uh, we're on it? Facebook at yeah. uh, I think it's at my Life Sherpa on uh, Facebook, but we're certainly there. We're on Instagram, mm-hmm. and um, I occasionally tweet. And Phil's teaching me how to be a Twitter user to be a better <laughs> tweeter. Um, yeah. So, um, well, Twitter's not very good for um, hollow self promotion, it's more for shit posting and having fun. Oh, we don't do hollow self promotion, as you know. <laughs> um, but lifesharepa.com.au, um, you can start with a free 30 day trial and get to talk to one of our team. Vince Scully, thanks very much for joining me today. Phil Muscatel, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.